So we're, we're taking a look at this. Today we're going to be looking in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, at a story in Jesus' life. And, and, and talking about this, um, you know, with what we're, we're looking at here, you know, the one and only, and I, I kind of, you know, described this a little bit last week. It's a phrase that's used to describe somebody who has kind of distinguished themselves from the crowd. You know, you, I, I, you could say, you know, the one and only Elvis Presley or the one and only Tom Cruise or, or any kind of, you know, the one and only LeBron James or whoever it is. You know, you, the list could go on and on. And sometimes we, we make these introductions for people, um, you know, that have a certain, uh, you know, position of clout or fame, these kinds of things. And so, obviously, uh, you know, we're looking at this, uh, some of the things in Jesus' life um, that he has said and, and, and has done that has set him apart from all others. And he is, he is Jesus is truly the one and only because uh, no one else can compare to him. And so last week in particular, we were looking at uh, the story where Jesus was talking to Pilate. And Pilate was interviewing him about um, you know, who he was, and, you know, are you a king? And Jesus says, are you calling me a king? He's like, what are you talking about, man? I'm not a Jew. Why, why would I call you a king? And, and then Jesus goes this thing, well, I am a king, but my kingdom's not of this world, and if it was, my people would come and fight for me, and I would, uh, you know, I wouldn't be here. And, uh, and he, then he goes on, he says that anyone who is on my side listens to truth. And then Pilate asks this question, what is truth? And the Bible says that he walked out of the room. What is truth? Uh, Jesus talks about truth a lot when he's dealing. So we, we're looking at this thing uh, of truth. And here's the thing about truth. And not, I'm not preaching my whole sermon, but just to kind of you know, refresh your memory. The thing about truth is, is that it, it puts us in a position where we have to choose one of two things. Our pursuit of truth is one that we can either fight. We can choose to stand and fight or we can choose to run away and flee. If we fight, it's because of this. It's because that we have the truth, and nobody else's truth can compare to our truth. And therefore, we have to impose our truth upon other people that don't want to believe our truth. So I uphold the truth, and if our life is a pursuit of truth only, then we could get to the place where somehow we are better than everybody else because we hold the truth. So what happens is, is we believe that we have the truth and nobody else has the truth like us, and that can lead to disagreement, which leads to devaluing, which leads to intolerance, which leads to extremism, which leads to violence, and ends up in terrorism. When we don't see the truth, uh, when others don't see the truth like we do, then we have a problem with them and it can take you down this path or we can choose to flee. And fleeing is like the society that we live in today where pluralism and tolerance become the words of the day. Let's just accept everybody's truth. Everybody's truth is equally important and equally valid and we're just gonna accept everybody's truth. And I told you a story about a young man who went to his professor and he said, hey professor, I believe that it's my responsibility to not disagree with anybody. And the professor said, no you don't. And he said, yes I do. And then the professor said, you just did. <laughs> That's how fast pluralism, this idea that we can accept all truths, that all truths are equally valid all right, 
That's how fast pluralism goes away when you really begin to understand because all truth, listen, all truth, truth, just truth all by itself, in and of itself is exclusive. It is exclusive. And Jesus says that anybody who listens to truth uh, listens to him. And the reason why this is important is because, um, and, and we're looking at here, is that Jesus talks to us about living in truth and in love. That you can't have truth without love. But Jesus exemplifies to us, listen, this idea that you can mix love and truth at the same time. Okay? So people that pursue truth only are the people that fight and say, you don't agree with me, I'm going to put you to shame. I'm going to, I'm going to ridicule you, whatever, because you don't agree with me. People that choose love say, well, we're just not going to disagree, and we're just not going to fight anybody, and we're just all going to get along, we're all going to love each other. And Jesus showed us that you can actually do both at the same time, that you can stand for the truth and you can live with real love. And that's how we mix those things together. And it's the thing that sets him apart from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says they, they either choose the side of truth or they choose the side of pluralism and love. And Jesus says, no, 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 we can live right here in the middle. And today we're going to be looking at a story here. In Jesus' life, found the gospel uh, of John chapter 1. And so let's read. We're going to read uh, probably about 16 verses or so. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can. Or you could just believe that what I'm reading to you is actually in the Bible. And, you know, I don't think I've ever said I'm reading something out of the Bible and not been in the Bible. But, you know, I suppose you trust me enough. But in John chapter 1, verse 35, and it says right here, And again, the day John was standing with two of his disciples... And he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translates means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour, one of the two who had heard John speak um, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he found his own brother, Simon. He said to them, we have found the Messiah, which translates means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And the next day he purposed to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew. And Peter and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have, found, uh, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and he said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right. So, 
obviously here we're, we're reading, uh, you know, probably one of the most in-depth stories and accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' interaction with the disciples from the very beginning. Most of the other accounts uh, of the calling of the disciples, you know, would deal with, you know, Peter and a couple of the other guys. But, but this one kind of goes in a little bit more in depth as how some of these guys were recruited and, and the conversations that happened along the way to convince them of all this. And so one of the interesting things, though, that we want to look at here is this first transaction between, between John's disciples. John had, John the Baptist had two disciples. He's declaring and paving the way for Jesus to come. And he sees Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God. And one of two of the, the disciples of John all of a sudden leave John to say, you know what? Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's kind of, instead of following John, let's go follow Jesus. He's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, let's go follow him. All right, And so Jesus, he asked this question of these two disciples. Apparently, he's kind of walking along, and two guys just start following him. So he's kind of like, what do y'all want? You know, why are you following me? Right? All right? And, and so one of the disciples here, <clears throat> one of these guys responds, where are you staying? Now, I don't know about you. But of all the things, of all the things that this guy could have asked Jesus in that moment, I'm not thinking that the first thing that comes to my mind is, where are you staying? I mean, this is the proclaimed Messiah, the proclaimed Son of God. Can't you come up with some kind of better, you know, theological question to ask the Son of The first question, I'm sure the other guy had to be like, where are you staying? That's the best you got when Jesus turns around and asks you, what do you want? You just want to know where he's staying? Like, who thinks like that? I'll tell you what, growing up in a house full of kids, sometimes the questions can be like, what? Like, where in the world did that come from? I asked you what you wanted to eat, and you asked me why the sky's blue. That doesn't even make any sense, right? It's just, it's just weird. But if we have this moment here. Jesus is walking along. John proclaims him to be the Son of God. The two disciples leave and come and follow Jesus. He asks them what they want. Of all the things that they could possibly want, they wanted to know where he's staying. Maybe, maybe that's because, um, maybe that's because there was a reason. I think sometimes um, when you don't understand the culture in which people live, sometimes you may not understand the reason why they do the things that they do, right? You ever been around people who are, or just culturally different, just different than you, and it causes you to ask questions about why the, they do the things that they do because you're trying to gain understanding as to maybe how they've grown up or what they're used to or what they're used to doing. Sometimes when you don't understand the culture in which people live, you can't really understand the reason why people do the things that they do. And I think this is a perfect example of it. You know, looking at this, 
you can miss out on the significance of why certain things happen the way they are. You see, we live in a Western culture, okay, in a Western culture. Our Western world that we live in is everything about your accomplishments. It's all about your accomplishments, your education, what you've done, all of these things, okay, your, your esteem and your position in society is based upon the accomplishments that you've made, the amount of money that you have, the places that you've been, the education that you have. <clears throat> but you know what? That's not the way it is in the Eastern world. It's different there. Uh, in the East, it's all about the family. It's all about the house that you grew up in. It's all about your father's accomplishments. It's all about your clan's positions and your clan's status and your family's position and your family's status. This is the most important thing. Eastern culture, when people are introduced, they are introduced like such and such father was this and his father accomplished this and his family is of this position and his family has this place and they have, they have this kind of, all right, that, and, and so it's all about the family when they are introduced, when they, when they hold their position, their self-worth and their value and their place in society is all about their family. It's all about their clan. This is one of the significant issues regarding arranged marriages and why arranged marriages work in that culture is because the reason why they do what they do is to continue to make their clan and their family better than it was before. So they want to arrange their children to be married to certain people so that it makes their clan stronger, it makes their family stronger, it makes the, who they are a better family. This is the reason why they do those kinds of things. We don't really have those kinds of feelings. We don't really have that pressure on us in our, in our Western world. So we just choose, and it's just like whatever for the most part. And they do these things to continue to help posture themselves in society because this means everything to them. Everything. Uh, education becomes everything for children growing up because becoming the top of your class, becoming the most educated, having all of these awards because significant because it brings your family pride and your prides, uh, your family receiving pride and honor increases their status in society and it makes a difference in everything. And so here we are, uh, here we are, we're looking at here the story we even see later on, you remember Nathaniel, if you remember this, what we just read, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's, it's not this idea that people are who they make themselves to be. It's this idea of where are you from? What clan are you a part of? Who's your family? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Even later on in the chapter, some, one of the other disciples says, isn't this the son of Joseph, the carpenter? Jesus. And so here we are, the disciple, one of the disciples says, where are you from? And Jesus responds like this. He says, come and see. Come and see. Because how does Jesus really answer this question in the first place? 
right? Uh, it would almost be like asking God, when did you begin? Right? You say, where do you live? Where are you from? Asking Jesus this question, Jesus fully aware of who he is in that moment would be the equivalent of asking God, when did you begin? It's not a question that can really be answered. It's not. His existence precedes every spatial metaphor. Where are you from? Just as it is impossible for him not to be, so it is not necessary for him to have a place to live. It's not necessary. And that's the reason why he responds the way that he did. He responds not like, well, I grew up here, this is my family. He tells him, he says, come, and I want you to see where I'm from. I want you to see where it is. I'm not going to tell you that I was born in Bethlehem, and I'm from Nazareth, and I, my, my father was Joseph, and my mother was Mary, or any of those kinds of things, because those things are worldly examples. Those things are worldly things that we somehow acclaim status and pride for that really mean nothing to me. And so he responds to Nathaniel. He says, I want you to come and I want you to see. I want to refresh your memory here of John chapter 1, the last couple verses, last four verses. It says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him, and he said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I have said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this. Listen, here's, and he said to him, truly, truly, I'll say to you, you will see the heavens open." And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, can you remember another time in the Bible where there is a reference uh, or a picture that is described of what Jesus just described? Where the heavens are open and the angels of God are ascending and descending. Do you remember a time in the Bible where that is mentioned? If you don't, let me refresh you, of my mem- refresh you of your memory. It's a story of Jacob, right? The deceiver, he deceives his family, he deceives his father, he, he's on the run. The Bible says he's in the wilderness. He falls asleep on a rock, and this is what happens. He has a dream, and in the dream, he sees a ladder, okay, coming. The heavens open up, and a ladder, and he sees the angels ascending and descending out of heaven. And the Bible says that Jacob woke up from that dream and he built an altar on that rock and he named the place Bethel. Bethel. Why is that significant? Do you know what the word Bethel means? It means the house of God. The house of God. And so Jesus here is making a reference, knowing 
knowing that Nathaniel would know exactly what he's talking about. He's saying, you're going to see the heavens open up, and you're going to say the angels, you're going to see them descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. You're going to see this. He's making this reference to what happened to the story of Jacob, who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He calls this place Bethel, the house of God. And so Jesus, right here, in this moment, he is claiming, he is making this claim that his Father is God and his home is heaven. He is making a claim that he is eternal. He is eternal. Right here in this moment, Jesus okay, is making this claim to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel knows exactly what he's talking about, and so do all the other disciples. Now, here's the thing, though. To make such a claim to be the Son of God, to say that heaven is your home, um, it's an extreme, extreme step for anyone to make. Now, most of us in here, we have already concluded that Jesus is the Son of God, so we're like, okay, yeah, but I mean, he has the right. But uh, in that moment, you know, that's a big step for somebody to, to make this statement, to make this this bold declaration, uh, you know, because, you know, they don't have their verification that we have today. But if Jesus made this statement, and the statement is true, then you would expect to see evidence confirming this particular statement. And today I want to look at two things, two things about Jesus' life that confirm the claim that Jesus makes here in this moment. The first one is the virgin birth, Jesus' virgin birth. Uh Larry King, uh, one time he was asked, um, he was asked by somebody, he said, if you could interview anyone across the span of history, who would it be? And Larry King said, I'd want to interview Jesus. I'd want to interview Jesus. And they further continue to press him, and they say, well, um, if you had to ask him one question, what would that one question be? And he said, I would ask him this. I would ask him, are you indeed virgin born? And he went on to describe, he said, basically, the answer to that question would explain history for me. The answer to that question would explain history to me. Are you virgin born? You see, if Jesus had no beginning, then his very birth must explain how he could be born and still not have a beginning. If Jesus had no beginning, his birth must explain this, how he is born but still have no beginning. And the virgin birth is the only way to explain the claim that Jesus made to being eternal, that a heaven is his home. Heaven is where he lives. You see, you have to think of the family here, including Zacharias and Elizabeth, uh, brothers and, you know, we know that John and Jesus were cousins. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. You see, had the virgin birth not been true, to assert its truth, 
if the virgin birth was not true, to assert its truth would have certainly led them to cultural shame and possibly even cultural suicide. Basically, Mary, Joseph, Zacharias, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, and all the disciples risked everything, risked everything for this truth that Jesus was born of a virgin. They risked everything. How can you make a claim like that? How can you make a claim like that and let somebody call you out if it wasn't truth? How can you make a claim like that and not put yourself out there? You think about the risk that is involved, the shame that is involved of, 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 of pregnancy outside of marriage and that culture. How memory, even in Jesus' day when he was older, they were wanting to stone the adulterous woman who got caught having sex outside of their marriage covenant relationship. Okay? Think of the position that they put all of them in in this moment, okay? this moment in time to claim this. It put them in a very precarious position. Even more astonishing than that, though, even more astonishing than, than the idea that, that this actually... Um, was a, a really a real big risk for all of them involved. Uh, you know, you think about uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and and what you know the fact that their son is being born to pave the way for the Son of God. Who in society wants their son to play second fielder to anybody? And yet, this is the truth that was being spread, and this is the thing that they had bought into. Nobody would willingly do this if it wasn't for the fact that they were being led by God to do such a thing. But even astonishing as, as it is of all of those things, one of the things, uh, one of the, the, the facts that we find affirming or affirmation of Jesus' virgin birth is found in another religion. Did you know that one of the other main religions in our culture and our world today affirms the virgin birth of Jesus? I'm not talking about Christianity. I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm talking about another main religion in our world today affirms the virgin birth of Jesus. To assert its truth, okay, to, to do this would create serious, con and has created serious conflicts inside that religious culture. And it's a religion that has violently pit itself against the Christian faith. It's a religion that has violently set itself against Christians and our belief system. And this claim, okay, that, that Jesus was born of a virgin Mary is found, okay, uh, in, in, the, in, in the other religion called Islam. In the Quran, six, written 600 years after Jesus' birth, 600 years after Jesus' birth, it affirms the virgin birth story in Surah chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. You can read it. And it actually talks. Now, obviously, a lot of the details in that particular uh, story are, are, are missing compared to what we have in our, in our Bible. All right? And obviously, the, the God who they're talking to is this God called Allah that they claim. But nevertheless, in the Quran, it actually affirms that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, why would the Quran and why would Islam hold on to such a claim? Like that, knowing that it only continues to reaffirm Jesus' position, Jesus' place. 
I think one of the other things that we'd see, we would see as evidence of Jesus' claim is a life without blemish. A life without blemish. Jesus' life has always been regarded by historians and theologians alike. It has always been regarded as the purest that has ever lived. Jesus' life by historians and by theologians has always been regarded as one of the purest that has ever lived on the face of the earth. Ever. Even his contemporaries in that day, on numerous occasions, his contemporaries, his enemies, they would, would, would challenge him by trying to bring up something against him. And every time that they did, they always failed. Every time they tried to find a spot in him, every time they tried to find a moment where he would slip up, a moment where he would fail, a moment where he would do something wrong, they would look and they would try to dig up stuff and dig up stuff because people were constantly against him. And yet every time they did, they failed. Even Pilate, who interviewed him before they crucified him, looked and said, this man has no, he has no blame. He, I have no reason to crucify him. He's innocent. And by contrast, by contrast, no other person has made such claims. Even Muhammad, Buddha, and Krishna, the three main figures of the other three biggest religions in the world, uh, Islam, uh, Hinduism, and Buddhism, uh, and Buddhism, all three of those guys, the top figures inside of their religions, all three of them, all three of them, their lives and their struggles and their sins are recorded within their own scriptures. They're recorded and written down, all of them. If you want to even go further, you could even talk about some of the other religions that are out there today. Mormonism, you go back to Joseph Smith and, and all of the stuff that he did in his life and the, and the things that are, we know are historically accurate about the way that he lived. And you can go to other religions as well. But we see this here, even in these main three, Islam, like for example, Islam believes that all the prophets were sinless. All the prophets that Jesus was a prophet, Muhammad was a prophet, Abraham was a prophet. Uh, these guys were, were, Moses was a prophet. They believe in all of them, that they were all prophets. Well, in our scriptures alone, it's well recorded the mistakes of Moses. It's well recorded the mistakes of Abraham. As a matter of fact, you know, we see this all throughout you know, some of the great pillars of the Bible. You know, and I think as one of the great evidences for the accuracy of the scripture is that we have all these incredible men that live their lives and are examples of faith. And yet at the same time, these, we, you know, we don't try to cover up to cover up the mistakes and sins of the other people that were listed in this book. We know Paul's incredible bad history. We know the, the mistakes of, of David, a man after God's own heart, and Moses, and Abraham, the father of faith, and, and, and Isaac, and all of these guys, and how they messed up and made mistakes and did things they shouldn't do with Elijah and, and, the, and the disciples, and all of them. They're all recorded here. We see them, but somehow Islam claims that the prophets were sinless. But even in their own scriptures, even in the Quran, it says that Moses asked for forgiveness, that Abraham asked for forgiveness on the day of judgment, that even Muhammad had to ask for forgiveness. Well, why are they asking for forgiveness if they lived a life that was sinless? Is there ever a moment 
in Scripture where Jesus has to ask for forgiveness? Where he has to say, I'm sorry? You know, Hinduism isn't exempt from this either. Krishna was well known, well known in the uh, Bhagavad Gita, which is their, the, I guess, the highest uh, acclaimed manuscript of, you know, Hindu, the Hinduist religion, religion and, and um, uh, you know, all of its writings. He was well known for his playfulness with milkmaids, um, with, with girls, uh, which has, has long been an embarrassment to Hindu scholars. Even Hindu scholars can't even explain some of the things that Krishna did that are well recorded from their, their historical documents and the, the way that he lived and the decisions that, they, that he made. Buddha. Buddha doesn't stand up as well with the belief inside of Buddhism that, uh, that even Buddha himself went through many rebirths. He went through many rebirths, this idea of reincarnation. Why? Because uh, you've made too many mistakes, and so you've got to be reborn and learn from your past mistakes so that eventually you'll, you'll get out of this constant cycle of rebirth and you'll reach a, a place, you know, called karma, I mean, uh, in, this, in nirvana, in enlightenment, you reach this place where you are somehow ex- uh, inexplorably removed from this issue of, of karma and reincarnation over and over again. And they believe that Buddha was reborn several times, and so if he was reborn several times, Times it meant, means that he lived several lives where he didn't get it all right, that he messed up and he made mistakes. Even so much so that I guess the last time that Buddha went through this, this particular process, the Bible, you know, not Bible, but the, the historical records show that, that Buddha, you know, he, he grew up in this rich family's house and, uh, and he had never been exposed to, to sin and death and suffering. And when he got to be in his early 20s, he finally was exposed to a world of suffering and a world of death and a world of pain. And, and he, what he did is he decided to set out on a path to know the truth. So he actually left his wife and he left his children and he went out on a path and he sat up on a tree and he said, I'm not going to leave this tree until I receive the truth. Until I receive enlightenment. Let me ask you something. When did Jesus ever have to search for truth? When did Jesus ever have to search for the answer? He didn't. He was virgin born. And he lived a life without sin. Furthering, you know, backing up his claim that heaven was his home. Now, maybe you're asking, well, why is this important to me? I'm glad you asked. I was getting there. Because Jesus came for... One particular reason, well, you know, it's all, all, all encompassing reasons. One of the reasons why Jesus came was to do this. He, was, he came to change our home, to change our home. He wants to change your home. 
he tells the disciples here in this moment, I want you to come see where my home is, hoping, okay, that this transformation would happen inside of them when they have a revelation of where Jesus is from, that there would be a change that would take place in his life when they saw this. We have made ourselves, we have put ourselves in a position where we are lacking, where we are incomplete, where we are searching, because we have measured ourselves by, in terms of race, we have measured ourselves in terms of power, we have measured ourselves in terms of progress, we have measured ourselves in terms of learning, we have measured ourselves in terms of wealth, we have measured ourselves by all of these worldly and earthly accomplishments, saying these are the things that describe who we are. These are the things that give us self-worth. And unfortunately, those things will never complete you the way that Jesus will complete you. Rob, if you'll come. You see, all throughout history, pride in family, pride in a clan, pride in a nation has led to many, many destructive movements all throughout history. This idea that I can be proud of my family, that I can be proud of my clan, that I can be proud of my nation, it puts us in a position where we establish our self-worth based upon these things. It puts us in a position where we can discredit everybody else. We can look down on everybody else because of our place. And we can even do it even in our Christian faith. Okay, That we find our self-worth based on the fact that we can call ourselves a Christian. And so we look at ourselves in this position. And we have pride in the fact that we are part of the church. And we look at everybody else like they're not as good as us. We can adopt a religious spirit. Sometimes, maybe it's not as extreme as that. Maybe it's not something that we are a part of as a, a, a culture or a part of as a nation or a clan. But sometimes the, the, the issue inside of us can be subtle. It can be something that's, that's deep within us and we don't even recognize it. There's a, there's a story in one of New York's leading newspapers many years ago of an interview with a wife of a New York Yankee ball player who had just signed an $89 million contract. Whew. Come on now. What's wrong with y'all, huh? I need one of y'all to go sign an $89 million contract with the New York Yankees, but live here in Calera so you can tie it to the church. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, it would be cool to know a baseball player that's like, you know, plays professional baseball. Signed an $89 million contract. The story goes that he held out for a long time before he signed, hoping that the management, hoping that management would match an offer from another team, and the other team wanted to offer him $91 million. So he held out, 
He didn't want to sign the contract for 89 because he held out because he wanted to receive 91. Unfortunately for him, the Yankees did not budge. I guess, unfortunately for him. No. His wife later, later said this, quote, when I saw him walk in the house, I immediately knew that he had not succeeded in persuading them to move up from 89 to 91. He felt so rejected. It was one of the saddest days of our lives. Okay. Now, <clears throat> yeah, I know what you're thinking. Right? Wake up. What's the matter with you? And while our examples may not be that extreme, our position and our place may not be that extreme, I think sometimes we can do the same thing just on a smaller scale. We wrap all our happiness up on external accomplishments. We wrap all of our hope up in external things, whether it's the kind of money that we make, the kind of job that we have, the kind of place that we have, the, the house that we have, the kids that we have, the cars that we drive. We wrap all of our external hope up in these things, and all of these things are wrapped up on this earth where we are so confronted with on a daily basis. Our flesh is constantly confronted with these earthly things. And we see this world that we live in right now as our home. And Jesus came so he could change your home. He could change where you see your home. Where you see your place of value. Where you see your place of self-worth. And this is the reason why in that moment when the disciples walked up to Jesus and said, where are you from? He said, I want you to come and see. Because it's not a little town that I was born in. It's not another city. And it's not about my family. And it's not about the accomplishments and the money and the jobs and the fame and the prestige in my life. It's not about any of those things. It's not about that stuff. Come and see, because there is a place that is greater than all of that. And it is a place where God has made you, and he has destined you, and he set eternity in your heart so that you can know that heaven is your home also. And you can live with that understanding, knowing that all that this world has to offer is meaningless in comparison to what Jesus gives us. You will never be satisfied. Never be satisfied with parties. You will never be satisfied with money. You will never be satisfied with more friends. You will never be satisfied with more likes on Facebook. You will never be satisfied with more followers on Twitter. You will never, those things will never satisfy you. They'll never satisfy you. That's because your home is somewhere else besides all that this world has to offer. Jesus came to give us a reality of a different home, knowing that the longing within us will only be satisfied when we make heaven our home and his kingdom our highest priority. So let me ask you something today. Is your heart at home? Is your heart at home? 
is the core of who you are where Jesus wants it to be at home. Remember, Jesus came to bring heaven to you. He came to bring heaven here so that we can live in heaven now, so that heaven can be a part of our life now, not later, now. And he wants heaven to be a part of your heart today. Will you stand to your feet this morning?